Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you this week something a little different. I decided that I'm going to take today and possibly also the episode later this week to talk about some famous anti-fascists. I know that this podcast is called 15 Minutes of Fascism, but sometimes we have to remind ourselves that people do in fact stand up to fascism and that some of those people did so relatively successfully. Today I'm going to talk about one of the most famous anti-fascist people in the history of the United States. This person is Woody Guthrie. Woody Guthrie, Woodrow Guthrie, was a U.S. folk singer, a socialist, and anti-fascist. Perhaps most famous now today for his now controversial anthem, This Land is Your Land which was intended to be a song about popular control over the United States, but is also race-blind and doesn't really engage with colonialism. These themes about not dealing with some of those issues will come up later in my discussions of Guthrie. Guthrie was born in 1912 in Oklahoma, named after Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was at the time the Democratic candidate for the presidency of the United States. Guthrie's father was a local businessman and landowner, a conservative Democrat, whom Guthrie later said joined the fascist Klan revival in the 1910s. By Guthrie's teens, his mother was institutionalized due to undiagnosed Huntington's disease. Now, Huntington's disease is a degenerative neurological disorder that causes a lot of behavioral changes in people. It causes people to become um, violent and prone to outbursts and to literally lose control physically of their body. However, in the early 1900s, we did not know what Huntington's disease was, and we did not know how to treat it. So she was institutionalized, and at the same time, Guthrie's father was away working to pay off failed real estate deals. His business life had soured by the 1920s. Guthrie ended up working odd jobs and begging, playing money for food in order to support his family, although he was primarily supported by his oldest brother at the time. In his late teens, he married his first wife and moved to California during the Dust Bowl, uh, which was a big meteorological event in the United States that caused a lot of farms and farmers to fail in the, especially like the Central Plains, you know, centered on Oklahoma, but also Texas, Arkansas, places like that. A lot of those people moved to bigger cities in the United States, Chicago, New York, and also California. Guthrie himself ended up in Los Angeles. Like many of the other rural people who had migrated to the cities, he brought the music, culture, and dance of his home to his new settings. Guthrie ended up playing music popularly, both in concert halls and also on the radio, because he was a skilled musician and also especially a skilled songwriter. Guthrie proved to be extremely poetic in a very everyman, believable, relatable sort of way. He started to get more into political songs when he was in Los Angeles in the 1930s, wrote a lot of political ballads, specifically targeting, you know, local politicians or national politicians, or calling people out and hoping to get their support for leftist causes. This was the 1930s in the United States, a high tide of communist organizing and power, not just in the United States, but around the world. Guthrie was probably never a member of the Communist Party. He claimed to be one, but there's no record of it. But some other people corroborate the fact that he was a Communist Party member. It's complicated. 
The point is that Guthrie was clearly what it was called at the time a quote-unquote fellow traveler. This meant somebody who was not an official member of the party or an official member of a communist organization, but who nevertheless supported the initiatives and politics of the communists. At the time, the Communist Party of the United States was run by Stalinists. It was part of the international system of communist parties that the Soviet Union ran, you know, starting in the 1920s and into the 1930s. So Guthrie didn't want to be part of that, although he did write for the communist newspaper. He wrote in a sort of like fake hillbilly vernacular. I mean, it wasn't fake, you know, that that was his actual accent, but he wrote in a sort of like, you know, like if you've ever read Mark Twain and Mark Twain writes in this vernacular way for the characters, right? It was something like that. The outbreak of World War II in 1939 increased anti-communist sentiment in the United States because at the time the Soviet Union and the Nazis had a non-aggression pact. They were sort of permanently at peace, at least supposedly. This anti-communist sentiment meant that Guthrie was fired from his job at the radio station and could no longer afford to live in L.A., he was forced to move and was thinking about going back to, you know, Texas, Oklahoma area, but instead took his friend Will Gear's invitation to move out to New York City. Will Gear was a prominent actor at the time. Specifically, he ended up playing a hillbilly in a very popular television show later on. Guthrie moved out to New York City and joined the beginnings of the folk music scene there. There he met Pete Seeger and Leadbelly Ledbetter, uh, a black musician whom hard rock musicians later stole from a whole lot. Like, for example, if you ever heard the song Black Betty, that's a Leadbelly Ledbetter song that they just stole. Guthrie spent the early 40s traveling between New York City, California, and the Pacific Northwest. This strained his marriage, and he later divorced. In the 1940s, he was part of a group called the Almanac Singers, which is an anti-fascist group of folk singers. This is the era when his, you know, his politics was really, really, really on his sleeves. He was writing music that was about fascism. It was about communism. It was about stopping fascists from taking over the world and why the United States should either stop hurting the communists by, for example, arming the Finnish government, which was at the time repelling a Soviet invasion, or why the United States should jump into the war and stop the fascists. This was also the time when he started putting on his guitar the words, this machine kills fascists. It's possible that you've seen a picture of a white guy crooning with a guitar that says those words. That's Woody Guthrie. At this time, he also wrote a fictionalized autobiography, uh, which was later adapted into a popular movie in the 1970s. This autobiography and the movie that it is based on are called Bound for Glory. When the United States entered the war... Guthrie ended up um, trying to get anti-fascists to popularize a more radical version of what World War II was about. A lot of his songs from this era are about fighting fascism and then coming home and ending oppression here. A lot of his songs were about connecting the problems that fascists cause abroad with the problems that people face at home. He sang about race hatred. He sang about redlining. He sang about bad landlords. He sang about terrible jobs. He sang about corrupt politicians. I mean, the guy was on it when it came to race and class politics, at least for the time. 
he was not really quite as there and and you know, like just really wasn't there when it came to gender politics. Uh, Guthrie was a self-avowed and self-aware bad husband and a bad father. He did not spend that much time with his family and was instead traveling around, singing songs, and trying to do political work. Guthrie joined the Merchant Marines in 1943 after the United States government denied his petition to be a USO performer. In the Merchant Marines, he just was a guy who worked on a ship and sang and played music and entertained the people who were there. After the war, he ended up on Mermaid Avenue in Coney Island in Brooklyn, where he was a mentor to Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who would later become a mentor to Bob Dylan. Unfortunately, right after the war is when Woody Guthrie's real music career ends. By the late 40s, his health was in decline due to his, again, undiagnosed Huntington's disease. Huntington's disease is a seriously hereditary disease. Many of Guthrie's children had it and died of it or of complications from it. His behavior became erratic, and he continued again to move back and forth between California and New York, institutionalized or staying with friends. This posed a strain on his other marriage, uh, which caused him to need to isolate from them. He eventually ended up back in New York City and was diagnosed with schizophrenia, which was a, an attempt to explain his erratic behavior, which was at times violent. Although, again, as a reminder, he had at this point largely lost the capacity to stop his body from doing these things. It's a neurological disease that, that severs the brain's connections and its ability to, to, to stop itself from lashing out in this way. Guthrie spent the last years of his life institutionalized in a hospital in New York City, occasionally being visited by members of the, you know, folk revival scene. He died on October 3rd, 1967, at maybe the peak of the folk revival, which he helped spur on. Now, Guthrie wasn't exactly a great man. He was a bad husband and a bad father. He was a committed anti-fascist, and remained an icon of anti-fascism into the present. A lot of his songs and statements and poems and writings remained extremely popular ways to express anti-fascist sentiment, not just in the early 20th century, but even today. Some of these songs, like All You Fascists Bound to Lose, are just like really good songs about why it's important to stop fascism wherever it's happening. You know, this was a song that Guthrie wrote during World War II, but it was about how we need to use the same energy to fight terrible right-wing shit in the United States that we are using to fight right-wing shit in Germany, right? It was also a song that is about how the United States needs to get off its butt and actually do something. And that's the kind of sentiment that I think that Guthrie exemplifies and something that it's helpful for us to see today. You know, somebody who did in fact spend his life trying to popularize the idea that fascism was connected to capitalism, that fascism was connected to white supremacy, and that those things were inflected and present in the United States too, right? Remember, Guthrie's political education began by seeing his father join the Ku Klux Klan, right? This is somebody who knew the connections between those things and who wanted to see them stopped, not just in Germany, but in the United States as well. All right. That was 15 minutes of fascism, maybe not quite 15 this time. 
15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you like the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right, that's H-I-S-T of the right, and also on fascism15. I'm also on blue sky at 15-M-I-N-S-O-F-F-A-S-C. All right, thanks very much, and I'll talk to you Thursday.